Let's pretend that this isn't advice. And I'm Erin, and I'm not giving you advice. It's it's not advice. I can't help myself <laughs> give advice. I don't mean to. I don't want to. I want you to be able to live your life, but I know how to do it. I'm a huge know-it-all, and this is where I practice not giving advice to people. Except I totally give advice to them. I'm a lawyer turned professional certified coach, and I just happen to give the best advice. But this is a podcast, not a coaching session, so I obviously don't do that here, except I do. This is not advice with Erin Conlon, your know-it-all lawyer coach friend. This is not advice. Today's guest is Rachel Brandt. I know Rachel from law school. a ridiculous number of years ago. Um, Rachel was in the JAG Corps. Uh, JAG is like, JAG is where lawyers go in the military branch. That's what I know. Rachel now is an entrepreneur. She's left the law and she has a brand called Mid-Century Aloha. We talk about that. We talk about the process of being an entrepreneur. Um, And we also talk about what it means to honor the places that we come from. If you like the show, Please like, subscribe, share, rate it, tell the world, scream from the mountaintops. Uh, That's the greatest honor you could give. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Erin. How's it going? Oh, so good. Um, So, Rachel, we know each other from law school, but we haven't talked in a a number of years that I'm unwilling to admit. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's been um, at least over a decade. We'll put it that way. So what have you been up to? I'm pretty sure you've been up to a lot of things. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of ground to cover, you know, law school graduation was, you know, about 15 years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. so I did a full law career. I worked at a law firm right out of law school and did that whole thing. Um, then I did some public service in the legal uh, practice space. So I worked for the federal government. Um, I was in the Army JAG Corps. And um, then I realized at some point that law wasn't all I wanted to do. So I started thinking about what it was I wanted to do. And I started making kind of um, plans for that. But that was a few years before I moved out of the legal um you know, the legal uh, practicing space. And now I'm pursuing entrepreneurship and uh, business. Oh my God, that's so cool. So something I've been wondering for a while now is what had you go into JAG? How did that happen? So I started my legal career in DC and I think you get affected by the environment that Uh that you're in. And so I think I was meeting a lot of people who were doing kind of cool jobs that were maybe a little more exciting than corporate law. So, (laughs) you know. Like what isn't more exciting than corporate law? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it's hard hard to imagine. But yeah, you know, I was meeting people who um, served in the military and there's people who were, you know, federal agents of different kinds. And I think I was kind of intrigued by the idea of, using my law degree to do something a bit more, um, I guess, in in its own way, a bit more interesting and exciting. So that's how I got interested in JAG. 
That's really, that's really cool. How much time did you spend in JAG? Do they like make you, or do they have you do a requirement, a required amount of time? They do. So there is a statutory commitment. Um, it was basically in the reserve space. It was four years drilling, which means you're actively each month going to a drill and then you have to do some annual training. And then of course you're subject to mobilization or deployment and things like that. And then it was, um, four years inactive. Although when I joined, it was actually kind of the height of Iraq and Afghanistan. And so the person I spoke with in the recruiting office for JAG, he basically said, you're going to be drilling for eight years. Um, So think of it that way. But uh, I ended up doing eight years of drilling, um, actually nine years. And what is, wait, what's drilling? Like where you actually have to go show up at each month and do workouts and stuff? Yeah, so um, the way I would describe it to people who weren't super familiar with the reserves is I would say, do you remember those commercials back in the 80s where they would say one week at a month, two weeks a year? A year. Um, yep. <laughs> does that ring a bell? Yeah. Totally. So, <laughs> so that's what it was, is one weekend a month, you know, put on your uniform and go to drill, your drill weekend. And it could be different things. Um, I know lawyers are doing different things than other people, but Sometimes we did soldier type work. We would go Mm -hmm. to the range and, you know, fire weapons and do weapons qualifications. Um, Sometimes we would do different kind of field exercises. And then sometimes we'd be doing super lawyer things like reviewing investigations and writing legal sufficiency memos, stuff like that. So was it more exciting than the corporate lawyer stuff that you were doing before? It was. I thought it was... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was it was definitely a nice change of pace. And um, it's, it was also nice because, you know, when you're in the reserves, you get basically two jobs. So you have your civilian job and then you can go off and do the, um, the military stuff. So it's kind of a, a nice balance. Yeah. So what what was your turning point in being like, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore? I think it was something that was way more gradual than a specific turning point. When I look back, um, I think this applies to a lot of people. You make a decision at a very young age to do something that kind of puts you on a track for a number of years. So when I was in college, you know, I did the poli sci major and I think, you know, you say, well, I'm an analytical and verbal person. And, you know, I, I kind of am into this poli sci stuff. And then you're around all these folks who are going to go to law school. And so law school seems kind of like a logical next step, but you don't really put a ton of thought into it. And I think that over time, while my career was interesting and rewarding and I had a lot of really good experiences, when I fought forward, like day to day, I was happy and enjoyed what I was doing for the most part. But when I said to myself, okay, now you're going to be doing this in three years from now, and you're going to be doing this in five years from now, you're going to be doing this for a decade from now, that kind of almost gave me like a, like a tightness in my chest. And I was like, oh no, that's, I don't think that's what I want to do forever. Oh, I know that feeling. I had that feeling. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of like, 
for me, it gave me like a panic response of like, oh, mm. oh shit, I have to go figure this out so that I don't end up in 10 years still being here. Yeah, it's interesting too how from the day-to-day perspective, you're like, everything's, you know, pretty good. But it's funny how when you make yourself consider the future, it maybe puts it in sharper relief, you know, as to what you what you want to do. Yeah. So tell me what you're like, you're you're an entrepreneur now. Do you how many projects do you have? What are you doing? Yeah, so I've got several things going on. Um, the, the primary thing that I'd like to talk about first, just because it's kind of what I'm, you know, super excited about right now. And that's kind of the most far along is mid-century Aloha. And, um, yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a small brand that I started at the end of last year. So I don't know if you have any specific questions about it or you want to. All of them. I have all of the questions. Tell me all about mid-century Aloha and like how it came about and what it is to you and what your mission with it is. Yeah. So, um, I lived in Honolulu, Hawaii from 2017 to 2020. And so, um, while I was there, first of all, like many people, I just fell in love with Hawaii. It's a beautiful, mm-hmm. wonderful place. Um, and there's a lot of mid-century, modern, inspired architecture and signage. And basically, that's the history of all that is just there was a huge building boom following World War II. And then there is, you know, statehood in 1959. And so it's just one of those places where it's got a lot of that history. And um, the idea of mid-century Aloha is, you know, a celebration of that mid-century modern design in Hawaii. And so what we do is we create all original artist design products that are inspired by that art and architecture and history um, and our current focus is on soft fabric t-shirts and limited run barware. And our mission is to, to promote historic appreciation and preservation. So basically we want to mm-hmm. share the tropical modern vibe, uh, both locally with folks in Hawaii and um, with Hawaii's visitors. I mean, I love that. I think when we think about American history, we don't give Hawaii that much credence. And what I hear is like, oh, wait, Hawaii has a ton of history as as America and also as its own like little tropical paradise in the middle of the Pacific. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a lot of mid-century art and architecture throughout kind of the Sunbelt regions in the United States. So, mm-hmm. if you, you know, there's actually also a lot in the Midwest, but I, I do think it's important that one of the most important and or the most important foundational, you know, culture and um and, and all of that in Hawaii is Native Hawaiians, um, mm. Native Hawaiian culture and totally. and sort of the modern the modernism and the tourist era um in the mid-century and after statehood is something that I think is um you know it, it's a it's an interesting and aesthetically rich era of history. But I also think I always like to point out that there is a whole history of, of Hawaii as a sovereign nation prior to, to when it was, you know, there was an illegal overthrow of the monarchy and then 
um, it was a territory for many years and then it was um, became a state. And so Hawaii now it's a wonderful, diverse, um, culturally interesting state and the United States. But I also think it's important to remember the history of all that prior. Oh, of course. I mean, I don't actually know the history that well. And how do you think that like the tension between honoring all of Hawaii, Hawaii's like long, long history, and then the relatively short term history plays into your brand? Yeah. Um, so that's something that I think we want to be really conscious of. I think that just the awareness and talking about it and acknowledging it. So there's kind of an interesting juxtaposition um, specifically related to mid-century architecture and the Hawaiian history and the history of Hawaiian monarchy. So in Honolulu, the current state capital, um, it was, I believe it was completed in 1969 and it's got this very quintessentially mid-century modern design, but it's built directly next to the Iolani Palace, which mm -hmm. was the home of the Hawaiian monarchy. And so these two things side by side, um, the state capital is a beautiful building to be celebrated with wonderful architecture. And there's great work that goes on governing the state of Hawaii every day. Um, and then next to it is the Iolani, Pal Iolani Palace where, you know, the queen after she was overthrown was imprisoned in her own, you know, castle. So, um, so I think you can best, I think it's best to just acknowledge that there is kind of an uncomfortable history there. And I think that's a really perfect kind of almost physical, you know, demonstration of that. Yeah it's almost like it was intentional, but I'm certain that it probably wasn't, huh? Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm assuming um, there was probably some thought put into that and I don't know if it had to do with the land availability or what um, I know, to be honest, I know more about the actual building itself than maybe some of the planning that went into where it, where it actually went. But regardless of, of that history, which I can't escape my background as a lawyer. It makes me want to go look that up. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that's what I would say. You know, mid-century Aloha is um, a celebration of a kind of vintage era. And um, it's part of Hawaii's history. And, and But we also don't forget that there's a more uncomfortable, complicated, you know, past behind that. And I think if people are more aware of it, then that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. What is it that you love about mid-century design? I think that for me, there's this really not only very cool, very appealing aesthetic, but there's also this vibe and nostalgia that goes with it. So one of the reasons that short run barware is part of our products is that, you know, the whole cocktail scene and the cocktail era where people would come home, you know, from work and have a bar cart there and do, you know, cocktails on their, their porch. Um, that whole feel goes with the aesthetic. And so 
I love those two things together, the aesthetic and the nostalgia and the vibe. Um, but sort of the background for me is I had a friend, this was actually, if you want to talk about a long time ago, this was back when I was um, in college at the University of Florida. And I had a friend who lived in this really cool 1950s ranch house and he had it decorated all mid-century modern. And he had all this like Russell Wright ceramics and he made really great cocktails and, and all that stuff. And so that was my first introduction to mid-century modern style. And then I would say living in Honolulu, um, I started out living in Waikiki and then I moved to the Kaka'ako neighborhood. There's just so much of that art, art and architecture around, like I said, that I just thought, you know, this is such an interesting niche of like the cross section of Hawaii and mid-century modern. Yeah. What is your like vision for this brand? Like long-term, short-term? So, you know, something that, so the first thing is, is that we're a hundred percent e-commerce based. So we operate virtually in our online store, midcenturyaloha.com. I would like to see us be part of some of the local retail shops in Hawaii mm -hmm. so that visitors can pick things up. Um, right now we're e-commerce so that anyone in the world, you know, can, can get our products. Hawaii has a huge international tourist and visitor base. So people from Japan, people from Australia and, you know, mid-century modern is a global kind of movement and architectural style. So I think ultimately the idea would be uh, to continue to just create new products that people enjoy and that evoke those nostalgic vibes and that um, we can contribute to historic preservation and responsible tourism. So um, one of the products uh, that we recently released that I'm really excited about, um, it's a poster print that was artist designed and it celebrates the 60th anniversary of the Bishop Museum's planetarium. And we are donating 100% of the profits from those poster sales to the planetarium, to the museum. And things like that, just being a part of the community, giving back um, is a big part of what we're trying to do with the brand. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's, first of all, I love the vibe of it. Like I follow you on Instagram and every time I see you post something, I'm like, oh, that is so cool. Oh, cool. Um, I'm glad you like it. What it like when you talk about the nostalgia, what is the like, what's the can you describe the vibe a little bit more? I'm like, what is it that you're um, recapturing? So I think that's one of the beautiful things about nostalgia is it's something that you can sense. You almost can't quite grasp it. And I wonder, I've thought about this before. I wonder if that's what's so attractive about it. Is it's something from the past and you can almost grasp it, but, but you can't. And so it becomes even more desirable that way, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah. So for, you know, you drive by some of these signs or some of these buildings, and it's almost like if you squint, you can imagine what it was like with, you know, palm trees swaying and the streets were 
less crowded and everything was just a little bit more in, you know, at least in your nostalgic memory, like it was just a little bit more um, low key, relaxing, tropical. And I think, you know, we tend to idealize that's part of nostalgia as you look back and you see things maybe through this lens and certainly, you know, there's much progress that's been that's been uh, that we've achieved in many in many areas, but the um, the nostalgia is really kind of from that that more aesthetic space, if that makes sense. Um, I, I guess that's part. That's why I'm having a hard time describing it because I think it's a lot of it's a feel that's kind of hard to articulate. Yeah. Well. You know, it might it might be helpful to like juxtapose it with today's modern design. Like, what do you like about mid century design that is missing in today's modern design? So I don't want to disparage anything about modern, you know, contemporary design because you know everything is. There may be one day someone, <laughs> someone, you know, will- <laughs> someone's going to come after you for being like, I don't like all that glass. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that you say that because that's obviously that was the first thing that came to mind is you know the glass, <laughs> the glass buildings. Um, so you know what I was actually going to say is that there might be a a time where people look back with uh, nostalgia about the the current, you know, the 2020s and the design that was popular. But um, I think that, you know, an example is, I do think there was more attention, more personality given to the buildings and the signage. So kind of a fun subset of the architecture that you can see in Hawaii. And of course, you know, these things are present in cities like Los Angeles and Mm -hmm. different cities around the country. But um, looking at Hawaii, you know, I think these signs were handmade. They weren't just, um, you know, they've got this great patina on them because the, the copper, the metal that's been used has turned, but that was sort of part of the design. They're handmade, hand shaped, and there was a certain element of pride and craftsmanship and personality that went into the signs that went on, for example, apartment buildings. Sometimes the sign itself is just as cool as the building. And mm-hmm. um, I think some of that's missing. Some of the ar- architecture and signage today just feels very corporate to go back to that, you know, idea. And and I think that's one of the one of the aspects of mid-century um design to me that kind of personality yeah I don't know if this is true but sometimes like when people talk about uh corporate or modern like the implication is that um it's boring and I wonder Like what I'm hearing you talk about is just the texture of life that you can kind of grasp from the architecture and from the design. And maybe all the glass is too sleek and there's just nothing tangible there for people to like grab onto as a vibe. Yeah, I mean, 
I think you might be right. I think that's a good way to say it. You know, I worked in BC for um, almost a decade, and it seemed like every building going up was that all glass, you know, mm -hmm. floor to ceiling design. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how long that that stays around as a style. You know, it is it is sleek and it is clean and um, I don't know. Erin, did you work in a building like that? Oh, yeah. You did? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I knew people who did. I actually never did work in a building that kind of fit that sort of model. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I remember someone saying that she said she was always really cold or really hot. So I don't even know if there's, um, I, I don't really know if that was your experience, but. Um. Yeah, well, they designed those buildings so that like the sun creates most of the heat like it's they're environmentally friendly and led mm. and so like all of that glass is has a purpose um and part of that purpose is to make these buildings more energy efficient and then the other part of them because we have so many that are going up in chicago and um like the other part of it is that it reduces energy usage because you have so much daylight so you don't need tons of lights on the inside. And I've worked in, I worked in another building in Chicago called the Prudential Center. And that's a mid-century building. And it did not have that daylight. It was like a massive, like fluorescent mall. And I mm -hmm. kind of hated being in there, but I didn't hate it that much. Um, so it's my understanding that a lot of this, like, these skyscrapers and these office buildings are being created this way to be more energy efficient more than anything. And see, that's a perfectly laudable goal. So um, I think that, yeah, I don't want to disparage any, any design style, but I think that mid-century is special and, and I really mm -hmm. like it. Well, it reminds me of there was a building on Michigan's campus that was salmon colored. Do you remember this building? It was on State Street or not Main Street, but whatever the it was on State Street, the street that is parallel to Main Street, right next to um, the Michigan Union. And that was a, a classic mid-century building. And I remember someone telling me that they used that salmon colored brick or cement or whatever, because that was what was available after the war. Oh, interesting. I'm actually not familiar with that building. I cannot for the life of me remember which one it is. If I can figure it out, I'll let you know. But I, I don't even know if it still exists. That campus is so different now. How often do you go back? When's the last time you were back? So my parents live in Plymouth, which is just like yeah. 15 miles east of Ann Arbor. Um, so I have season tickets. I'm generally season football tickets. I'm generally back at least once a year for football games. And then I'll see my family in Michigan three or four times a year. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So what are some of the other things that you're up to? Yeah. So, um, a few of the things I'm working on are still pre-public. Um, I've got a, um, a business that I'm working on with actually a friend of mine from college. And um, we're kind of in the early stages of that. So 
that's not really podcast share ready, but it's exciting. Yeah. (laughs) But it's, would you be willing to share about like what's exciting about it and how you came up with an idea? Yeah, sure. So it was kind of a serendipitous thing. I was actually talking to this friend about something completely different. And somehow toward the end of the conversation, we realized, wait a minute, wait, there's a thing maybe we should be doing. And so I love that because it was a completely different intent at the beginning of the conversation. And then we ended up somewhere. Um, That's really exciting. So I will say that, that I think sometimes in life, just be open to the opportunities that might develop that you weren't even anticipating. And so there's sort of Mm -hmm. an optimism you can maintain, if that makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. Like, what I hear in that is just a willingness to create as well. Take what comes and make something of it. Yes. I think, too, there's sort of a principle that I've had for a long time, and it's a good example of it. I do actually like to talk to a number of people whenever I'm trying to make a decision or do something because you get different perspectives and you often end up in a better place and it wasn't the place that you had set out to be. And I don't think anyone can on their own. Well, some people probably can, but um, speaking for myself, I think it's hard to on your own see all the possibilities because you have your own kind of blinders on or your own mindset that you don't even realize might be might not be as creative or might not be as open to the the different ideas that other people bring. So I would definitely yeah. say talking to people is great. Wait, so do you have like, this sounds like you have a council. Who are your council of advisors? <laughs> um, it's an, I would say I don't have a council. Um, I wish I did, but I would say that I kind of create one based on whatever is going on. So, you know, there's some sort of important decision to be made or some kind of opportunity that I'm, I'm thinking through. And I think of who are the people who have experience, who can give me, you know, you sort of have a sense of what friends are going to be the more pessimistic ones, what friends are going to be the more optimistic ones. And so I think I would say I develop like ad hoc councils depending on the mm, issue. Yeah. But do you, do you think I should, do you think I should have, or people should have like a standing council type of thing? I mean, I kind of do like not so that they're the people that make the decisions, but you know, one really cool thing that I've experienced because I work with so many coaches Mm -hmm. is the ability to hear what I'm not hearing. And then because I have so many artist friends, like the ideas that I have become more robust with their points of view. Um, so like maybe your council doesn't have to be specific people, but then, you know, I'm a little just to be super transparent, judgmental. And so there's some people's opinions I'll take and some people's opinions I won't. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of like what a council in my mind would be for is like, whose opinions would I trust who can provide a diverse set of viewpoints? Yeah, no, I like that. I think that's, 
you know, it makes me want to ask you about the people whose opinions you wouldn't take because sometimes I even find that those folks, they say something that has value, um, even if it's just the kind of thing where they say something and you realize, oh my goodness, there's going to be a certain you know, number of people who see something this way and maybe it's mm-hmm. something you should take into account. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Well, so like almost one, because their advice is bad, it's it's helpful. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> bad advice is sometimes good advice. I think some of the um epi- like some of the points of view that I don't give a lot of credence to are people who are always a no. Hmm. Yeah. Like, you know who those people are. They're the people that are like, stay safe. It's going to be okay. Stay where you are. You're fine where you are. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Um, And they'll have good points of view, but like that's helpful up until a certain point. And then you got to say yes to things. Yeah. No, I hear you on that. I think if you're just always saying no, always playing it safe. I mean, going back to joining the reserves, that was a huge leap of faith because there was that statutory commitment. And I remember having kind of one of those mini panic moments of what did I do? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Federal um, law says you must stay in this job, but like yeah. what happens if you don't? No, exactly. That's the thing. Um, you, I mean, bad outcomes, you end up with possibly a dishonorable discharge or other than honorable discharge, those types of things. I mean, depending on what you do, but you are for all practical purposes kind of stuck with your service commitment. Now, for me, it ended up being just a wonderful leap of faith. It's one of the best things I ever did. I'm so glad I did it. And so I think sometimes when you have fear, Mm -hmm. it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, What's another example of you running towards fear in that way? Or maybe not running, but like being willingly dragged towards it. Definitely the career pivot from law, for Mm -hmm. sure. The, I mean, I think I reminded myself of the experience of being afraid to join the reserves. And then the fact that it was one of the best experiences that I've had. Just the idea that if you're too comfortable and you're not afraid, then you're probably not maximizing your experience in life just in general. So this career, this career pivot has been exhilarating and there's definitely times where you say, oh, you know, things were safe and comfortable, but that wasn't, I didn't want to be, you know, safe and comfortable. And I'm excited about all the different things that I've got going on. I'm, I really look forward to, you know, what's going on in my day and what's going on in my week. And mm-hmm. it wasn't necessarily that like that, you know, before. Yeah. What's a week like in the life of you as an entrepreneur? I'm a big believer in the block time scheduling. Okay. So um, I I block time out, you know, morning. Basically, it's like there's certain things I'm better at in the morning and there's certain things that I get done in the afternoon. Morning times are basically the stuff where it takes a lot of 
focus and brain power. If I'm writing something, that's for the morning. And then afternoons are more things like emails, phone calls, Zoom sessions, things like that. Yeah, I have block time too. Like all of my clients are in the middle of the week. And then Mondays and Fridays are for admin things. Um, Nice. Because otherwise, like hopping from task to task makes me crazy. I just don't get as much done. And oh, my puppy just decided to join this podcast. Um, I don't get as much done. And I really like, for better or worse, being a lawyer in a large law firm where billable time was like the be all end all. My relationship with time has been massively impacted by that. And so I'm always looking at like, what's the most efficient use of my time. So I have as much fun time as possible. Um, what do you think? Just, I'm, I'm only curious. Um, what do you think about the effect of billable time on the legal profession? Do you think that makes people burn out faster? Um, what are your thoughts? It's, well, it's kind of like this arbitrary performance measure. Um, and I think that billable time kind of, re- it rewards inefficiency. It rewards, mm. um, it rewards this idea of work yourself to the bone. I don't know if you've done any reading on like capitalism as white supremacist culture. Not specifically, no. Yeah. Well, it like the billable hour and these requirements for, you know, bill this much time, have this many, you know, um, business development hours, this many learning hours. Like when I left the, the firm, the, it was 2,400 hours a year for billable and non-billable time. Just like that was the minimum. Yeah, that's a lot. That's 200 hours a month. And, you know, you lose a lot of time when you're not billing. Like, you lose a lot of time that's not billable. Walking Mm -hmm. to and from point A to point B, you could have a 15-minute walk, and that could be lost time for billing purposes. But it's not invaluable time. And this idea that, like, every minute has to be monetized is kind of a mind-bender. It's crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, I I wasn't the biggest fan of billable hours. I will say that it seems like there hasn't been a ton of progress on alternative billing practices. So I know there was a big push for like flat fees and different types of things like that. But the billable billable hours still seems to reign um, supreme. Well, I mean, the legal industry is an industry you know, based upon the way things were like everything that happens in the law is because it was that way before. So it would take a massive paradigm shift across the world for that to shift. True. I agree with that. Well, we'll see. We'll see. But I agree that it seems like there was at one point, Oh, we're going to, you know, this is the new thing, alternative billing arrangements and it really just seems like the billable hours is here to stay. So, yeah. 
Well, I'd be really interested to see how like millennials and the the younger generation come up as lawyers too, because they seem to be much better at disrupting things than um, our micro generation was or Gen X was. Well, now we're going to get into one of those discussions about where you draw the lines on generations. So <laughs> I consider myself in that like generation that has 17 names. Okay. I think I'm, I think I'm an elder, an elder millennial or a geriatric millennial. <laughs> yep. That's what, that's the one. Yeah. We've also been called Oregon Trail, the Oregon oh, Trail yep. generation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like, how many identities can I have as a generation? We'll answer that question when we're, you know, in five years, 20 years. Um, so I'm just dying to know, like, how many businesses do you want to have? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that there's not really necessarily a specific number. I do one of the um, strategies that I'm intrigued by is the idea of people setting up businesses and depending on what the goal is, taking it to a different place. So sometimes starting a business, the goal is to um, create a business that's going to last for, you know, a hundred years and you're going to, you and your family and your descendants are going to run it for a hundred years. Um, sometimes the goal of the business is to set something up, get it running, get it profitable and then sell it and have someone else kind of carry it on. Um, for me, I think that since I'm early in my pivoting from law to entrepreneurship, I think I've got a few things going because I'm learning and I'm looking to see, you know, how do I want each of these, you know, business endeavors to end up? Is it something I want to sell? Is it something that I always want to run? Um, is it something that, you know, I tried, it doesn't work. And so I move on to something different. That's just a, you know, a slight tweak from that original idea. So I'm, I'm very, you're catching me in this sort of space of very early evolution. Well, I love that. And I think it'll be really cool to come back to you in two or three years and see how things evolved. Um, what are you finding right now is effective for you? What does work? What does work is being open-minded and doing two things. One, making sure to reach out to people who are experts in their area and mm. can offer you guidance and perspective so tapping into those resources, whether it's things like working with a coach, um, things like talking to your friends, um, you know, the council idea that you mentioned, mm -hmm. or I'm actually doing right now, I'm close to wrapping up this program. It's called Service to CEO, and it's operated by the Rosie Network. Mm -hmm. And basically, it is kind of an entrepreneurship um, education um, course where, um, you know, veterans, military spouses, and um, service members who are interested in entrepreneurship can kind of learn the process. And so each one of the modules that we do, there's a subject matter expert. And oh, cool. Yeah. 
So some of the um, requirements are actually to talk to a certain number of mentors and things like that. So I think the um, learning and reaching out to people. So, you know, I guess the other prong of it was the, the learning piece. So just making sure there's so many opportunities to, if you want to learn anything, you can basically find a course on YouTube or online. And I think that's so cool because it's way different than us, you know, Oregon Trail generation people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you wanted to learn something, there's the encyclopedia or you can ask your parents or whatever. And that was kind of the end of it. But I think um, it's really exciting. I mean, you could you could learn almost anything online. So, yeah, it's really fun. Like, well, what's the what's the coolest thing that you've learned in the past six months? Wow. Six months is a long time because I feel like I'm learning so much like rapidly. Okay. How about a month? What's the coolest thing that you've learned in the past month? So in the past month, I'm going to have to think about that. Um, Okay. So this is maybe not the coolest thing. But since we're talking about it's a cool thing and Mm -hmm. since we're talking about the generational um, kind of impact on the economy and the workplace, one of the subject matter experts that we listened to, he made the point that there's going to be a lot of businesses that were started by the baby boomers and in the next, you know, several years to 10 years they're going to be looking to sell those businesses because they're no longer going to be able to run them or be interested in running them. They're ready to retire. And so that there's going to be a big opportunity for millennials to then purchase those businesses that the baby boomers built and take those businesses, you know, to the next, you know, onto the next era. That is the kind of thinking that hadn't occurred to me you know? Yeah. I'm like, Ooh, what laundromat do I want to buy? Yeah. It's <laughs> like a dry cleaner out there. I'm, I'm sure a car wash, things like that. You know, what I heard is incredibly profitable is storage. Okay. That's interesting. I don't know. I don't remember where I heard it, but I heard that buying storage, like having a storage business is super profitable. That is interesting. I wonder if any of those are franchised. Um, they have to be. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. You know, I think that sometimes some of the most profitable businesses are not necessarily the most, you know, flashy. Right. Well, I was, I don't remember who I was saying this to, but um, I got real stoned once and (laughs) I had this realization that Q-tips are profitable and I was okay. like, how are Q-tips profitable? <laughs> like, how does that happen that this tiny piece of paper and cotton made in China can be sold for $3 at fi- like 500 of them are $3 and there's a profit to be made around it? Yeah. I mean, I guess it's intriguing. It's intriguing um, in certain states for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I, there's just things that you don't... That you don't think about, you know? Can, can you hear my dogs? I can. Oh, no. Hi, dogs. 
guess someone um someone was at the door possibly yeah well so what kind of help do you need for your businesses like I hear that you're getting supported by you know all of these experts and by this program with Rosie I can't remember what it's called um what other kind of support would like help your businesses grow and help you grow I just want to put a plug in for the supportive network and supportive friends. So I think that one of the biggest factors in success is having people around you who want to see you succeed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sure you can relate to this, but there's some folks that are either, you know, two degrees of separation through you know, professional experience or people I know from high school, people I know from law school that are just, you know, in your corner, your cheerleader. It doesn't mean that they're investing in your business or buying your products or anything like that, but they're kind of, um, you know, they're there liking the posts and they're there, you know, cheering on your achievements. And I think that that is, to me, I find that to sustain and encourage me. So basically positive people kind of in your sphere. And I don't know if that's been your experience, but I mm-hmm. think most, we actually have a, um, a law school classmate of ours who is pursuing um, entrepreneurship as well. And who? we kind of, <laughs> I don't, she'll, she'll be mad at me for, for mentioning her name on a podcast. Oh, okay. You can just <laughs> tell me later then. Yes. <laughs> but we were, we were commiserating about the idea that, and it's, it's fun. It's good to learn and grow and realize that, you know, you have this idea, like certain people that, you know, you, you don't expect them to basically even remember who you are. They're like, you know, hugely supportive. And then there's some people who just kind of don't get it and they're not particularly supportive. And I'm not saying that everybody has to be, you know, a cheerleader, but I think that I just want to say, I really appreciate the people Mm -hmm. who have been that. And I just encourage folks to um, do that for anyone in your life who's pursuing something different. Yeah. There is zero cost to hitting that heart button or hitting that like button. And it means so much to the person on the other end to just have their work acknowledged. Exactly. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, I do make a concerted effort to like people's stuff. I really like, I am probably an over liker. No, I don't think you can be an over liker. I mean, that's what it's there for. (laughs) So as we wrap up, the question I have for you is like, what does success mean to you? So there is definitely success that is, I don't know if you were to do kind of a conventional poll, you know, um, what, what do people think is, is success? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I read this quote recently, and I'm actually just pulling it up. It basically says, don't trade your authenticity for approval. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of things you can choose to do. And I think you should do what you're authentically interested in and um, and good at and, and, you know, want to learn and grow and all that. Um, so for me, success is pursuing those things. And evolving and achieving 
you know, whatever goals are, I think there's success in the pursuit of the goal. So ultimately, yeah, yeah. ultimately, um, let's put it this way. You can be successful in a number of things, right? But I Mm -hmm. think being, being successful in, in what you're, um, what you're truly interested in and passionate about is, um, probably the ultimate success is what I would say. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is that there is no like end to success for you because it will always be a process. That's a great way to say it. Totally. That's so cool. I can't wait for all the other things. Wait, are there any other projects that you need to plug real quick before we wrap up? Um, I appreciate that question. Uh, no, I just, you know, mid-century Aloha is, is what I'm really excited about some other stuff. And, um, I look forward to sharing that hopefully, you know, later this year. Okay. Awesome. I can't wait for it. Um, thank you so much for being on this podcast, Rachel. It was such one, it was so great to reconnect with you, even if it was for just like a little bit of an hour. Yeah, Um, no, this has been awesome. And two, congratulations on all that you've done. Like you really have done some cool things and, um, I just want to let you know how much I admire and respect what you've been up to. Oh, thanks, Erin. Well, I appreciate that and definitely admire and respect what you've got going on. It's nice to see other folks kind of on the same or similar path. Yeah, totally. All right. Thanks, Rachel. Okay. Bye, Erin. This is Not Advice is brought to you by me, Erin Conlin. If you are interested in learning more about my coaching practice or how we might be able to work together, please visit erinconlin.com. This podcast would not have happened without production support from Cedar Cathedral Narrative Studio.